0: Welcome
1: to the Brave New Workforce, the podcast that is changing the way the world works. I'm Larry Cornett, and I'm joined by my Trailblazing co-host Anna Codina and Trip O'Dell. Anna, how are you? How today?
2: long have you been working on that intro? You sound so cool. What I, is that? I've been
1: doing a lot of media training recently. So what? it's like I'm working on my radio
3: voice. You
2: know? Well, yeah, Larry, that's Larry,
3: Larry has been talking about our guest this week. For a very long time. Probably. And and so he's, Anna, he's classed it up this week. He's definitely more put together. He's got his hair (laughs) combed. I know. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. he's got the mic. First time ever. Looks really, yeah, he's he's on point this week, which is good because he was out of pocket all last week. So he owes us. Sorry about that. Sorry Uh, about that.
2: Yeah, too cool for (laughs) school over here. Yeah. Leaving us peasants to our own devices. Yeah. Speaking of devices.
1: Ooh, ooh, speaking (laughs) of. So, yeah. yeah. Listeners, our dear listeners, we have a brilliant guest on our show today. So let me dive into a little bit more about who she is. Dr. Julie Albright is a digital sociologist who researches the intersection of society, behavior, and technology. She's currently a lecturer in the departments of applied psychology and engineering at the University of Southern California. Love that California girl. She's a prolific keynote speaker. Highly sought after for conferences, events, television, radio, podcasts. I tried to go through the whole list, and I would list some of those appearances, but we would be spending the rest of the show talking about those because it's a lot. Um, I highly recommend reading her book. So it's called Left to Their Own Devices, How Digital Natives Are Reshaping the American Dream. So, if you want to understand the impact of the transformation that we're all experiencing, how we got here and what it means for our society and future, go check it out. You can download it on Amazon, get on your Kindle, be part of the future. I'm so happy that she agreed to come on our show. Julie, welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here.
1: So, let's start with the primary thesis of the book this concept of untethering. Could you explain more about what that means for the audience?
0: Yeah. Well, I've been at USC for a while. I teach there. I lived there with the students. I was a faculty in residence for a number of years uh, and started noticing some trends there where the students were experiencing very high levels of things like anxiety and depression. And it, honestly, the highest rates in 30 years across the country, not just at USC, amongst college students, it's really becoming kind of a, a health crisis, if you will. And and I, in addition to having too many degrees in sociology, I also have a master's and PhD in counseling. So it it just alarmed me. And I thought to myself, I'm also changing kind of looking at it as in a systems um, perspective, an individual within the family, within the culture, within the nation, ecosystem, etc. So I thought to myself, you know, things don't happen in a vacuum. What changed? What's driving this? What's causing these behaviors, and how do we kind of get back on the course, on the path to happiness again? So I started reading a number of studies, and and I think I would say my forte is bringing together disparate things. I'm kind of a creative thinker, and and I started reading studies ranging from communications, uh, neuropsychiatry, psychology, sociology, you know, business across the board, uh, looking at. Um, you know, the ecosystem and nature and things like that, and started realizing that compared to their forefathers, their parents, their grandparents, let's say, young people today aren't doing many of the things that they did. Example, uh, getting married, buying a home, uh, buying a car, having kids, going to school, uh joining a political party or joining clubs like the local rotary or golf clubs or, you know, whatever kind of thing that might be, going to church. So, in other words, unhooking from all of these things. Well, putting on my sociology hat, so one of the earliest studies that we looked at uh, was by Durkheim, and it talked about that very thing. Although it was done a long time ago, it still addressed this issue that those that are more firmly woven into the social fabric are actually psychologically and physically healthier than those aren't. Now, he was looking at church, but if you look at these, what sociologists call these social structures, the family, the church, these clubs, all these little things, you get got young people unhooking from all of them and at the same time, hyper-attached to digital technologies, to social media, to Instagram, etc., It's almost like building your house on sand. So this constellation of behavioral change combined with with attached to digital technologies at the hip, uh, I call this coming untethered. And it has vast implications for every aspect of society from our political processes to our families to the workplace. And so I've been talking to a lot of folks about that, what this means, and exploring that and these trends were largely these uh, sort of leading edge millennials, if you will, kind of hipster, you know, moment. But given COVID, now everything's fast forwarded. This digital transformation of everybody, where now we're all kind of living untethered in some manner or fashion.
1: I was just going to ask you that very question. It's like because we started this podcast pretty much right when the pandemic was hitting its worst and everybody was going into quarantine and so we were seeing what was coming i was going to ask you if this untethering has accelerated because of the pandemic
0: but the pandemic turned what could have been a good idea or an idea for these kinds of institutions into a must-have you know now it's like we're forced into digital transformation at the in education I just got off, uh, you know, Zoom classes this week with my students, you know, and there we are Zooming in. And, and that, that's going on from kindergarten, clear through university, it's going through work, it's going through conferences, you know, you name it. We're now all forced onto that because of this COVID moment where these other opportunities, conferences, workplaces, schools are not available. And in fact, I just got an email today saying, yeah, in the fall we'll be online again. So, I mean, this is going to be ongoing, you know, through the rest of this year is, is my call on it. So,
3: so, Julie, I had a couple of questions, um, you know, and the first is, Larry, do we, do we wait or do we just offer the co-hosts offer right now because i think like (laughs) julie's hitting on so many of the things that we love to talk about yeah uh you know it's uh you know this is really exciting uh to talk to you but um and i actually studied a lot of the same things that you're interested in and part of this is uh, one of the early media theorists uh marshall McLuhan, used to talk about the medium being the message and how like the way that story changes as it moves from, say, television to books. And I think behavior works in a similar way. Like mobile devices change the way that we compute it. Um, you know, and, and that's that's sort of a behavioral thing. That's not necessarily a technology thing. The way that we use voice computing is starting to change the way that we engage with systems. And it's not as distracting or doesn't have as many notifications. Is this really just sort of a really awkward, really working from home arrest as opposed to working from home situation? Like what's the, what's your take on that?
0: What's so funny is, you know, I'm in conversation with a lot of folks about this and, you know, they said, it's not working at home, it's living at work. And I think that's probably true. You know, people are getting to the point, like they're just kind of over it. And, you know, we've seen when you're mentioning voice, you know, people an article came out this week talking about how huge swaths of different kinds of friendships have been completely erased during this moment. Um, like the example was going to the sports bar, you know, watching the game together and everyone cheering and having a beer and patting each other on the back, uh, you know, and shouting and cheering for their team, and that whole thing is just completely wiped off the map. And and the gal was saying you know, these are people I know their face or I might know their first name, but I see them all the time and I kind of feel like I know them. And, and she says, nothing takes the place of that. So in this moment comes along Clubhouse where, as you said, suddenly voices back, that voice to voice. And, you know, a lot of, I, I write about this in the book. There's a chapter on untethered from the body. Our devices, you know, these cool glass screens kind of erase the body in many ways. I mean, you can you can see things, but the sense of smell, the tactility of life, all that's erased in a digital world. And so there's pleasure in tactility. There's pleasure in, in being an in, in embodied, we're embodied creatures. And I think there's not enough. People think we can just sort of uh, you know, in, embed our mind and, and amplify that through a device, but we're missing that embodied sense of ourselves and so i think in the workplace in the school in this sort of friendships missing so the point of voice and the point of clubhouse now i think it fills a bit of a vacuum there where people are going on and having these discussions that they might have had at a conference so they might have had at a university or in a gathering of friends in new york or something like that uh, in, in our case, we've been having a salon sort of thing that Larry's attended. But this idea that, you know, bringing voice back is a way to bring the body back to the experience. So, you know, post uh, COVID when things open up again, uh, people are able to gather together in these sort of, they call them loose tie networks in, in social networking ideas. Uh, when we're able to you know, see that coffee barista or that bartender, or the waiter or our friends or the people in that sports bar that we're all cheering along with, uh, apps like Clubhouse m- may not have legs after that point, and that that's my call on it. But at this point in time, it's kind of like the perfect storm where everything's coming together. But I think that this experience, and I've talked to some you know corporate leaders about this, although we're working on tethered now, and we will continue to do so, many companies are now going all in on this. We still need those moments, that shoulder to shoulder, rooting for the team, having an experience together at dinner or drinks, whatever that may be. And I'm encouraging them to find those ways. You know, maybe it's an offsite at Lake Tahoe for a couple of days, or, you know, you're out hiking around or sitting around a fire You remember those moments and you build bonds and you build trust through those kinds of casual, you don't, you know, maybe you don't think that much about it, but that's how you really get to know people and build relationships that people trust. And so uh, hopefully we can bring some of that, you know, embodied self back together once we get through this moment, even though we'll continue to work untethered, That would be my recommendation there.
2: One of the things that I'm experiencing currently is that the friends that I had already were either closer or further apart. You know, I've been conscious with connecting with the same types of people that I truly, truly care about, which is great. But when I, what, the, one of the problems that I'm experiencing now is that when I'm networking or doing these, like, online get-togethers, um, it's very difficult to continue that train of thought or continue that momentum. I'm having a hard time building new connections and I don't have a process or I haven't seen a place that talks about how do you develop this process in a digital world where you like randomly meet somebody through Clubhouse or whatever social media platform and then usually it's like, oh, let's get coffee or hey, this is this or whatever. We're not doing that anymore. And so once that initial conversation is over, I don't know how to keep it going.
0: Some of the big Uh, data center people and digital infrastructure people I work with, these are like billion dollar deals they're putting together. And what I'm hearing off, you know, off record kind of thing is that they're going back to people they know and trust for that very reason. It's like, well, uh, we kind of know her, but we don't know her that well. Let's (laughs) Let's go back to the tried and true as opposed to testing something out because they haven't been able to build that in this new moment. And that, and that's a true challenge for workplaces. So I would just suggest, and there are people, and the reason I'm saying this out loud, I know people that are saying, well, why do we need to go to conferences? We don't need that, we can just zoom in. Because those casual moments are where it's at. It's where you build the trust. I zoom in with my board all the time on infrastructure maintenance, we're all around the world but we've had dinner in Monaco. We've had drinks in New York. We've had lunch in London. We've had events up in the Silicon Valley area together. So when we zoom in, we, we have that in the back of our mind. We laugh and think, wasn't that fun when we did X, Y, or Z? We already have that bond. And the zoom is, is, an, is kind of carrying it forward, but not creating it. From scratch. Do you understand? So That's a how big do we, difference.
2: how do we do this then? Like how do we create these casual moments in time uh, in a virtual setting? Because what's really been great about the pandemic is that I'm meeting all these new people in different locations that I probably will not go and visit. So there's a, be- there's a beauty to that. However, how do I make it one step further? How do I make a connection?
1: Well, I don't know. I'm feeling kind of torn about this because I have – two people on this call, my co-host, one that I did meet that way. So Tripp and I met at a conference in Canada and we shared a beer and we talked and stayed in touch. And we kind of built the relationship from that in-person meeting. I've never met Anna. She's in Costa Rica. I mean, we met many years ago, virtually. I think we had a virtual coffee. Remember the whole tea thing? So it's like, we've never actually met. And yet we've built this strong relationship and I'm trying to, to your point, Anna, understand how was that possible? And I think video made a huge difference. So I think the video chat helped. I think it did take longer with Anna because I think we knew each other on and off for a year or more through this community, this entrepreneur community.
2: Yeah, so it did social take longer. Because we were following each other on social media. But yeah. I think what really accelerated our relationship was through joining your, uh, your community. And then I was seeing you every week you Remember, yeah, so that's, that's right. the yeah. key. Um, but you know, when you're just meeting somebody randomly, like we knew each other for three years before we even
1: probably, yeah, yeah, it took, so longer. It took,
2: but, it took three years for me to, <laughs> hey, i yeah,
3: I take but a but the,
1: long time to, to get up.
2: into your little <laughs> circle there, your inner circle.
3: <laughs> but the thing, the thing, the thing about Clubhouse, because I, I, I got invited to it uh, a week or so back, and and uh, one of our uh, former guest Amina Moreau hosted an event online. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, interesting. But it's it's almost like everybody came in, almost with a sort of a soapbox projection. Oh, it didn't. Yeah, yeah. And and I think Amina and and her co-host tried to do a good job of moderating that. But and Clubhouse does some good things where you can't use a fake name um, to do it, and that kind of creates a little bit of accountability. But I've had far more. Um, positive experiences on stuff like, uh, lunch club where Mm -hmm. it really is one-on-one. And I think one of the things, you know, I talk about like monkey brain a lot, a lot of this stuff, we've got old brains with new technology. (laughs) We're we're fighting an arms race, but there's a, there's a, there's a, a one-on-one, uh, and sort of intimacy in the interaction. You kind of, you can't sort of hide behind your brand presence or an interface, there's sort of, there has to be a level of authenticity that doesn't come across. And that's something like, even with the millennials that I manage in my new job, I spend a lot of time in our one-on-ones really just, and this is more from my experience as a teacher and a coach, connecting with them. spend like prioritizing, building that relationship and that our one-on-ones are more about what's really going on. And I think it's, we're not using the tools correctly. We're not really thinking about what the tools are good at and what they're not good at and being discerning about those choices.
1: There could be. I mean, I think there's some positive stuff, and I wanted to touch on this too from your book, Julie, which I liked a lot because I've experienced this, and one was the global citizenship, which is I would say even though I was in Silicon Valley and I had teams all over the world and I spent a lot of time in China and India and all that, I don't think the global citizenship kicked in until I built this virtual network of folks like Anna. I have friends in London and in Scotland. I have friends all over the world. And it really made me aware of the local issues they're facing. And they'll message me. They're like, are you guys doing okay in the US? (laughs) They care and they're worried. And we all have realized we're a global community of human beings beyond the flag that flies in our country. And so I, I love that you were talking about that sense of global community and, and citizenship and uh, journalism, which I think is amazing. My news comes through Twitter because it's like people on the ground. So I wonder, do you see, and I think you do, kind of a positive side where this could go that's a really nice outcome?
0: Well, I think that's a really interesting um thing that's happening you're talking about uh particularly millennials are the most likely cohort to see themselves as citizens of the world and the most likely cohort to have a passport which i think is interesting uh and there is this idea of you know living these adventurous lives and i talk a lot about that and working remotely mm-hmm. and and a lot of them are starting to do that about 48 of millennials are freelancing which can cut them loose from that workplace, in a sense, uh, and experiencing other cultures, having friends around the world. I mean, these technologies, I end the book talking about Wafa, this beautiful, the uh, shining face I saw in, in Paris. She and I had lunch together, and she was just beaming. Her face just had this glow of joy mm-hmm. and, and, and kindness, and I just can't say how beautiful this young woman was young Muslim engineer from Algeria. She lives in the hottest place in the world And she's like, you know, come visit me in the red sand deserts. I'll be waiting for you. And I'm like, oh my god, like you know. So, but she she said to me just a couple days ago on Facebook, she said I had a dream that you came and visited me in Algeria, and I showed you the desert, and and (laughs) you know, and she was telling me how they come out at night and you know build a fire and they sing and they hang out as a family Mm -hmm. and they cook, and you know, I was just imagining a, a world that. I mean, imagine this was, you know, 1952 or 1932, like, you know, somebody like me coming from Newport Beach, California, imagining a life with this woman, like she literally is on the other side <laughs> yeah. of the world, you know, with another life and another story and way of living in the middle of the hottest place in the world. Wow. And yet she can right. say, I had a dream about you last night, Julie, <laughs> that you're visiting me and I'm like, oh my God, I'm sending your kisses and... I mean, it's just (laughs) incredible to think. You know, it's, it's, you, you almost take it for granted. But if you really step back and think about that, that is a small miracle in my mind. That alone. I see a guy on TikTok who is in an African tribe who's TikToking, showing, hey, here's what we're eating for lunch. Here's my dad. This is what we do. And they're, and they're in like tribal outfits with the hair locked, like, Oh my god! And I'm getting this little glimpse. And there's another kid that's in the Amazon rainforest, showing he's got this monkey, and they run around. And it's <laughs> a da- it, you're like, and, he, and he's TikToking it. This is a yeah, miracle. Yeah. It, it is. truly it is. is. I mean, and and we might go, oh, there's a guy. Okay, let me swipe and look at the next one. Oh, here's somebody dancing in Beverly Hills, like you know. But <laughs> if you slow down and think about that, and the ability to see, I think it can build empathy. I can think it can. Mm-hmm. There's nothing stronger than putting a face. Like, for example, things like prejudice. The people that are most prejudiced are those that don't know anybody that's, you know, fill in the blank. We're now able to reach out and see and see lives. It's not some story about, here's me telling my story on the TikTok or on social media. And and you're seeing it yourself with your own eyes. It's kind of unbelievable, you
3: know? So, And I think that... I mean, it's. I think it goes beyond sort of nationalism. I think there's also sort of regionalism. There's a sort of a destruction of regionalism because um, when I was in my twenties, I I went and I was in the volunteers on a reservation and I lived. Uh, I I was living in a in a in a volunteer house with five other guys as part of a twenty person volunteer community and those those are among the best friends in my life. I think people have these other uh sort of transformative larry spent time in the military and and went through you know boot camp and all that kind of stuff all that, and fun stuff all that fun stuff but there's these sort of uh crucible moments or sort of rites of passage um that people are they're going out and they're almost finding their tribe i, I saw this trend in europe where people are renting these big houses to sort of be in lockdown together uh right you know right. and 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 i think there's elements for that but I wonder how much of this is a, a reaction or, or sort of like a, a return. So we went way out where we're in these cookie cutter McMansion houses that came up in the 80s and 90s. A lot of things changed in the 70s. I remember growing up, a lot of moms stayed home and then there was a big move for women into the workplace and you had two income families and neighborhoods. When I was a kid, there were kids all over the place and everybody knew whose moms were were home and and there's good change that came out of that, but there's things that you you lost that sense of neighborhood community. You didn't see the block yeah, parties true. and those sorts of things. So, how much of of this is sort of pendular, and how much do you think is permanent in these changes?
0: It's a good question. Uh, I I'm thinking a lot about cities uh, this week. We're recording a podcast about the bursting urban bubble, and that's part of the trend of. Untethering we saw this uh, movement towards cities and particularly in this pandemic moment We're seeing an outflow from cities, you know going on from New York to Paris Mm -hmm. to Barcelona It's not just here in the US because of COVID and it's really transforming I think it's the combination of that plus the lockdown. It's giving us a moment to reflect that maybe in our busy lives we wouldn't have had time or we're running around, you know, this this quiet hours and hours of quiet time when you you don't have all the stimulus coming in of, of moving about in a city and seeing people and hanging out and going places and, you know, music or food or whatever you're doing. So people are stepping back and some are starting to sort of reimagine what, what life could be like. And there are people now that are setting off on a journey to reimagine the city, to your question. Uh, Neom, I guess, of northern Saudi Arabia, there's others. The guy from jet.com that was at Walmart doing their online sales is stepping away to redesign society. So, that bubbling up, there's these ideas. And, you know, in part enabled by digital technologies, particularly in my mind, as we go forward, things like uh, Elon Musk's Starlink. It really does unhook you from place in a sense right. to say, well, let me go live out in X, Y, Z because I can still connect and do my work and things like that. So it's going to enable some of these things. But we had an interesting conversation about this, and I'm going to keep having these conversations um, about you know AI and future cities and what this all means, combining our humanity with you know artificial intelligence and and city infrastructure. And somebody said, you know what what is what does it mean like let's say that we were all to sit sit down and think to ourselves you know what could life be like we're going to start all over again and create something and it's funny cuz the technologists want to find a fit for technology but you know, as I'm arguing in my book, hey now I think there's two as, of us in the room. I know. but as I'm arguing in, in my book, and believe me, I'm the first guy to take a picture of my lunch and post it on Instagram. so I'm not trying to be Amish, you know, but what I am you know but what I am right. saying is that uh, I think that to reimagine the city, you know, we have to go back again. We're embodied. We have to think we're creatures right. of nature. Right. We need to bring back the embodied experience. Like you talked about walking in the neighborhood, you know, mm-hmm. these sorts mm-hmm. of things. The arts. Uh, we have to bring back our relationship to the green spaces. There's mm-hmm. study after study that shows that just seeing these green spaces out our window makes us calmer and happier. So, you know, that's the thing. It's not all about, you know, it's like a a technology solution looking for a problem. Well, if we put more technology, well, how about if we put more nature, more of our embodied experiences, more of the arts, and technology is there to make it convenient, to make it fun or helpful, but it's not the whole picture.
1: Hey folks, this is Larry. We were enjoying our conversation with Dr. Albright so much that it ran a little long. So we've split it into two episodes. This is the end of part one. Be sure to subscribe so you are notified about the release of part two to catch the rest of the interview. Thank you.